I'm Roger Baker, Executive Director of the Stratfor Center for Applied Geopolitics at RAIN, a global center of excellence for geopolitical intelligence and analysis. Learn how you can put geopolitics to work for your organization at rainnetwork.com. Welcome to the RAIN Insights Podcast from RAIN Network. In this episode, David Lawrence, co-founder of RAIN, speaks with Michael Millett about the evolving outlook for, for the cyber insurance world. Michael Millett is the founder and managing partner of Hudson Structure Capital Management. HSCM manages nearly $4 billion in reinsurance and transport strategies in Bermuda and Connecticut. The firm manages assets across the property, catastrophe, casualty, life and health, financial lines, and distribution and services subsectors. He also serves on the boards of Cybercube, Meanwhile, Vault, and Gracie Point. Mr. Millette was at Goldman Sachs from 1994 to 2015, where he served as a partner, global head of Structure Finance, and co-head of the Structured Finance Capital Committee. Mr. Millette was one of the founders of Goldman's reinsurance, structured finance, and principal businesses. He was a team leader or key team member for over 150 transactions in the sector, including the market's first 144A catastrophe bond in 1996. He also led teams that developed Goldman's businesses in transport finance, intellectual property finance, private placements, and project finance. Mr. Millette began his career as an analyst at Citibank and also previously worked as a portfolio manager at John Hancock Financial. He graduated from Cornell University with a BA in history and also holds a master's in finance from Boston College, Carroll Graduate School of Management. Mr. Millette became a CFA in 1994. Mike, it's a definite honor and privilege to be able to speak with you and as it was an honor and privilege to work with you at Goldman for the many years that we were together. So thank you for making time. Thank you, David. It's great to connect today to talk about the insurance market. Um, As you know, um, you are going to be participating as part of the, I'll call it thought leadership, for the listed members and their boards and C-suites of the NASDAQ. And what I have found, and I I certainly learned a great deal from you, uh, not just at Goldman, but subsequently, the issue of insurance uh, is one of the most important issues in the management, mitigation, and quite frankly, preparation uh, for risk. And uh, in the last couple of decades, companies have had to confront an increasing number of issues that previously they did not have to particularly think about, whether it's cyber, geopolitical, the business interruption possibilities of a pandemic, mm-hmm. terrorism, and uh, obviously the usual issues that deal with uh, what I'll refer to as corporate fraud, government investigations, etc. And I know not only um, have you been one of the great innovators in structured products, but you've um, created some of the leading risk management products that are in the market today as well as advised many, many companies and their boards. So uh, maybe we can begin with just an overview about how you think about business risk 
and think in turn about the types of insurance products that are out there and how boards and C-suites should think about the better and ways, I didn't say best, but the better ways that they can protect themselves and their stakeholders. You know, there's a, there is a substantial discussion about this in the insurance world right now. We are dealing with a commercial insurance paradigm that grew up in the 20th century. And that insurance paradigm was built first and foremost around insuring physical risks. That was an achievement. Throughout the 19th century, the insurance industry evolved from being able to cover fires and then to be able to cover substantial fires. That's when reinsurance was built in the mid, 18, in the mid 1900s, excuse me, the mid 1800s in Germany, um, to being able to cover the emerging industrial world. The insurance industry developed engineering capabilities, analytical capabilities, actuarial capabilities that enabled it to analyze plants to cover steam boiler explosions, to cover industrial accidents. And we rolled into the 20th century with a commercial insurance business that was based firmly on physical assets. The companies would analyze the physical assets of a firm. They would assess the possibility that the use of those physical assets would be interrupted and would pay insurance based on the damage and the interruption. Um, separately, you know, insurance developed employee benefits features, workers' compensation, but this was all still based around a physical business environment. And that's not where we are today. A large majority, nearly 80% of the value of the S&P 500 consists of intangible assets. Um, especially intellectual property. The needs of business still include coverage of physical assets, but most businesses um, have very extensive intangible operations that need to be covered. Intellectual property, reputation, um, work processes, brands. And those aren't covered very efficiently by the 20th century insurance system. And we saw that starkly in COVID. We had a massive shutdown of businesses across America um, that, did not, that did not coincide with any physical damage to those businesses. And policies pretty clearly spelled out that in order to collect for business interruption, um, companies needed to be able to show physical damage, and there was, and there is specific language um, ruling out bacteriological and viral um, causes for lack of access to facilities as causes. And so, court rulings have been pretty universal. The insurance forms in place do not cover business interruption. The industry correctly points out that it would be hard for them to cover business interruption on that scale. But the fact stands that we had a major loss event and insurance uh, didn't cover it and simply wasn't able to cover it. And companies are talking about how they need to evolve 
um, to cover the needs of companies today. COVID uncovered another feature, which is let, let's leave aside the fact that it didn't cover physical assets. It turned out that many companies were able to continue to operate without physical presence because of Zoom calls, because of virtual connectivity. Um, the large majority of companies were able to continue to carry on their affairs. Certainly companies that make things in factories needed people on the floor. Um, and frontline workers were absolutely critical. But many, many companies in finance and in, in, in law, in professional services of all sorts, were able to carry on um, without physical presence. The insurance industry is not addressing that state of affairs. In addition, we've had whole new sources of non-physical threat arise, especially cyber, on its heels whatever the maleffects that will grow out of artificial intelligence are. And the industry has had to develop a whole new product array to address those issues. So I expect that as we move through the 21st century, um, we will evolve an insurance model that will have as its basis not physical assets, but company continuity with riders arising out of that, but that's not where we are today. So that will represent a change. In the meantime, companies need to think about how to adapt an insurance system based on physical assets to cover the other sorts of risks that they have. Mike, that's a um, actually fascinating overview of the evolution. And you've enumerated a number of we'll call it corporate assets, I put that term in quote, that need to be protected. And um, the real question here is what should companies and boards be doing um, just in terms of the availability of insurance today and what's not available today? How should they think about potentially protecting or identifying sources that could insure against these risks uh, in the future? Well, let me say that a good deal is available today. It's just that it flows against a business model that was more pervasive in 1950. So to adapt what is available today to what you need, you have to think a bit outside the box. So what's available today? Certainly coverage of physical assets. You have to think hard when you get to catastrophe exposed assets, and that is becoming more of an issue than it used to be, because at least over the past six years, we've certainly had um, an upward drift in, in, in physical threats to assets from, from, you know, from wind, fire, water at all. So physical assets can be covered. Catastrophe exposed physical assets are going to take more work than they used to. Business interruption is covered to the extent that those physical assets are impaired. But if companies want to think about company continuity outside of the physical asset space, they are going to have to adapt coverage. They're going to have to buy special business interruption or contingent business interruption, which addresses situations where companies have losses but they still have use of their physical assets or, or in any case non-damage of their physical assets. 
um, that needs to be documented and purchased separately from standard commercial multi-parallel or from standard commercial policies. Um, cyber insurance is available. It's typically fairly narrowly constructed, so companies have to think carefully about whether they are getting all the protection um, that they need. I think we're going through an event right now, um, a hack, the Move It hack, which is causing many companies to stand back and think about whether their cyber limits are where they should be and to seek to increase their cyber limits. Um, the cyber market is the fastest growing market in insurance. Cyber premiums were maybe a billion dollars 12 years ago. Um, globally, they were over $12 billion in 2022. Um, Jeffries estimates that that quantum will be um, over $25 billion by 2025 and in the hundreds of billions of dollars by the late 2030s. Um, the industry is working to grow cyber capacity as fast as it can. Companies that want to buy cyber capacity uh, need to be seeking that specially. That doesn't come as part of a commercial package and increasingly cyber risks are excluded from a commercial package. Um, insurance for intellectual property, brand and reputation are all products that are available. They are typically not included in normal commercial packages. You typically need to talk with the agent and to seek to secure those um, separately. And then finally, um, the whole realm of political risk. And this includes confiscation in difficult jurisdictions. It includes political violence, strike, riot, civil commotion, terror. Um, those lines of insurance are available. They don't fall into your lap in a standard commercial package. You need to think about what you need jurisdiction by jurisdiction. And the pricing in terms of those lines are tightening. Those lines of business have been hit hard over the past few years. From everything from you know, civil unrest in, in, in different countries that we've seen uh, to the larger war that we see now um, in Eastern Europe. And so those are all areas where the insurance industry can work, but it takes extra work from the corporation and the corporate risk manager. So those are some areas to think about, David. And this then, and, and, and then you have the broader area of just of just business continuity uh, to think about. You know, what what sort of protection do you want around things like customer lists? Um, that starts to get into areas where there are not conventional insurance products available today. And Mike, when you think about um broadly the act of, acts of terrorism mm. or the events such as pandemics. Yeah. Tell me how companies should be thinking about those specific risks. Well, companies need to think about physical assets they have that can be damaged. They need to think about the ability for them to continue their operations, which may be disrupted. They need to think about supply chains that may be disrupted. The one-two punch of COVID and the, the Ukraine war created very, very serious disruptions in supply chain, ch chains 
that caused companies not to be able to secure the goods they needed at the times they needed and that disrupted business continuity without any physical damage at all to the companies. Um, and that is actually some, there is a young insurance market around supply chain and companies can tap that, but they need to think about their exposures. I, I think that many companies were learning through six years of pandemic, of catastrophe and of war, all of the different sensitivities they had that they may not have been aware of. Um, and those are all areas where they can seek insurance. And Mike, I know you've been spending a lot of time around cyber, um, which obviously can involve theft of data, denial of service, and many other forms of what I'll refer to as um, espionage and um, potential reputational harm in the release of emails and communications. Uh, but it also, when a cyber event occurs, uh, it also attracts a fair amount of litigation, civil litigation, uh, on behalf of customers or strategic partners, government investigations, at times fines, and uh, other types of punitive measures. Could you unpack, when we talk about cyber insurance and the cyber risk, what does that actually mean? Well, cyber insurance can cover all of those things. And in fact, history to date, a substantial majority of all the claims payments in cyber insurance have been to fund um, notification activities, indemnities, forensic activities, as opposed to damage per se. Because most of the damage that's been done in the cyber world history to date hasn't been physical damage. That's possible and it happens. Uh, but the losses have been data theft, ransomware, and you need to notify victims. You need to pay for credit monitoring for victims in the case of data theft. In ransomware, you may or may, or ideally may not, need to pay ransoms. Um, you need to pay costs to recreate um, data that's become inaccessible. So the losses that have been paid in cyber are not losses, you know, as, as we see in hurricane risk, where, you know, a house is knocked down, you have to pay to rebuild it. It's, it's losses that are paid to third-party victims of those that are hacked to help them to recover data, monitor data, um, and, and the like. So that's cyber insurance provided those sorts of services around that data theft, those sorts of services around ransomware, um, which was the prevailing cause of cyber loss starting in about 2018-19. Uh, one of the issues for cyber insurers is that the risk surface is always changing. You know, we, it, data theft yesterday, ransomware today, what exactly will it be tomorrow? Will, will cyber criminals become proficient at actually tapping into disrupting and extracting value from wire transfers? That hasn't been the case. That's, of course, a concern. Um, we don't know exactly how cyber risk will manifest itself in the future. To what extent will cyber and 
artificial intelligence start to work together so that cyber risk will shift into the realm of, of deep fakes, of you know, falsified kidnappings um, in order to extract value. Um, that's something that cyber insurers and cyber and potential cyber targets are thinking about. Okay. And of course, there. Uh, I just want to go to what is often overlooked is the next order of consequence against these cyber events, which very often uh, class action litigation as well as government investigations. And is there an insurance market for those risks? Well, the in in cyber, for example, in some current hacks. What we're seeing is that the, the moment a hack occurs, um, there is a plaintiff's lawyer attempt to identify all of the folks whose privacy has been compromised, all the folks whose data has been stolen, and to bring them together into a lawsuit. And, and those lawsuits are a key part of the claims costs in cyber. Um, Plaintiff's lawyer, plaintiff lawyer activity will increase the cost of cyber losses, um, although they also provide a vehicle for victims of cyber to seek restitution. Mike, um, a lot of focus has been on climate change, and which can affect, obviously, um, supply chain, all the things you've referenced, business continuity, supply chain property damage, um, but also, you know, the intangible disruption of a business. Can you give us a sense of the market for how companies can begin to protect themselves um, against climate change? And I look, I know also we've, we've discussed uh, a number of markets are drying up. Companies are staying away from insuring physical property in various areas of the country right now. We, um, one of the stunning features of our lifetimes is that we had a period from about 1969 till about 1989 when we had almost no catastrophes. Um, we had very few, none that are all that memorable, none that caused very large insurance losses. We had 20 years of peace in our lives. And because of that, almost every adult over 45 and in the United States of America thinks of the catastrophe experience of the past, you know, from the 1990s onward as being extraordinary because, you know, in our youth there weren't many cats. Um, that time of peace was a little bit odd. There have always been cats. Um, the 1920s and the 1950s were particularly ferocious. Um, that said, we do seem to have an uplift in frequency and in certain types of catastrophes, especially wildfires and flood events all around the world in a way that is broadly consistent um, with climate change theory. So we have to assume that we are experiencing some of the, the, the downside of climate change and it is getting harder to secure homeowners insurance in some cat-exposed parts of the country. It's harder to get wildfire insurance in California, harder to get homeowners insurance in Florida, and certainly much more expensive. 
Um, and that's true for individuals. It's, it's true for companies as well. Uh, this is very likely to be broadly true going forward. What's been happening in the insurance market over the past two or three years is prices have been rising very sharply, and that has been bringing additional capital into the market. So you can secure insurance, but it might be at a substantial premium to what you're used to. So I, I think that what corporations need to assume is that if you are operating in cat-exposed areas, the cost of doing business is higher, and you're going to have to manage that and price it in. And it may be that operating, you know, in a wildfire or a coastal hurricane zone has X additional costs that makes you think about whether you want to build plant, you know, in a place that isn't quite so exposed. Um, the insurance will come, but there'll be a price for it. Mike, as, um, as a potential board member who wants to understand how a business has sort of taken stock of some of their most material risks and what steps have they taken to insure against those risks, um, can you maybe give us a, a primer about how a company should begin to make that assessment? So companies typically have a risk manager which who's, who has really two jobs. One is to try to inventory company risks, and the other is to put into place a, an insurance and or protection program. And, you know, the risk, the, the, the risk texture of the world is evolving. We didn't think much about catastrophe risk before the 1990s. We didn't think much about terror risk before... 2001. We didn't think much about cyber risk before 2012. So I think that actually when companies think about their risk, cat terror and cyber are probably three of the front and center items in their mind. And, you know, think about the fact that if you were a corporate risk manager waking up, you know, one morning in 1991, you probably didn't think of any of those things in your top three. So that's a little bit of a lesson that, that boards should take enterprise risk evaluation and the risk manager uh, more seriously and look not only for process-oriented feedback, which will tend to always be stale and backward-looking, but look for a little bit of innovative thinking. You know, what is going to happen next? Um, there are certainly pregnant areas. Artificial intelligence is coming fast. It is going to change the risk surface for businesses. And it doesn't seem to me that there's a lot of thoughtfulness around that. Um, the broad area of political risk, which was more or less a bull market, from 1989 onwards, you know, the Berlin Wall fell. We lived in a much less politically risky world for a long time, 9-11 notwithstanding. Um, political risk seems to be increasing sharply. There's, there's more war again, there's more civil commotion, and there's more political polarization. That is part of the emerging risk surface. 
Um, we all think about climate change, so that probably isn't new. I suspect that there are risks around management of talent that are not front and center enough. So, and in addition to that, casualty risks, which have been quiescent, you know, we had a massive explosion in, in the notion of, of, of liability in the 1980s. People got used to it and it plateaued. We had decades of tort reform. Um, we, we do have another broad expansion in notions of liability. Um, those, I think that the dialogue between boards and enterprise risk managers and, and, and the risk manager themselves, all of which are typically part of the staff of the finance team, you know, it, it, it's, it's a very process-oriented dialogue. It should be, uh, there should be more spitballing because the risk surface is moving. So, Mike, I like this notion of spitballing and, and, and thinking around the corner. Uh, there, uh, the uh, known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. And if I could ask you to maybe, because you are always trying to think ahead in terms of the risks and, and the development of insurance products and, and insurance partners, um, what risks are you thinking about right now? that you believe the market is going, the insurance market is going to have to address. You've referenced deep fakes, you've referenced, um, you know, the potential of intercepting swift wire transactions, uh, the possibility that the whole, you know, K&R, kidnap and ransom, which has been a uh, long established market, that that could be uh, disrupted through deep fake and artificial intelligence technology. Um, but, you know, if you were going to look out, I won't even say the horizon, but, you know, just look out maybe 12 to 18 months now, what would you be thinking about in terms of the issues that um, companies not only ha have to deal with, but the insurance market hopefully will be in a position to address? Well, let me give you two on the 12 to 18 month horizon and one on the 12 to 18 year horizon. On the 12 to 18 month horizon, um, cyber. Um, the insurance industry is working hard to keep up with demand in cyber. Um, that is, is, is going to require the insurance industry to you know, invest in modeling, to uh, attract third party capital capacity to help it manage keep, key peak risks, excuse me. Um, so that is one for 12 to 18 months. A second is casualty or liability risk. As I said, this has been a fairly settled pot within the insurance industry for a while, but we are seeing an upsurge in large litigation awards, an upsurge in mass torts. Those are undoubtedly related to the growth of alternative litigation finance. Um, I suspect that the industry um, is a little bit behind and will be needing to seek price increases and companies need to think about their liability risks. But let me talk about the 12 to 18 year horizon in the largest line of business in the world. And, and, and this is a great sort of case study in how the risk surface is changing. Auto insurance. 
auto auto insurance and in fact autos themselves and the way that people use them are right now not a lot different than they were than when my grandfather bought a car and bought auto insurance in the 1950s. The vast, vast majority of cars are internal combustion engine cars that are driven by owners or lessors um, and that are not shared and that are insured with indemnity auto products generally purchased through an agent, sometimes purchased directly. And that was true 25 years ago, and that was true 50 years ago. There's almost no chance that that will be true in 12 to 18 years. So first of all, let's take the cars. We are starting to see a pretty important shift from internal combustion engine to electronic cars. That is pretty consequential. Electronic cars have 80% fewer moving parts. They have different sorts of damage and different sorts of insurance needs. Furthermore, um, we are seeing a shift from people driving their own cars to using shared fleets, and that's likely to continue, especially in densely populated areas. In addition, we're seeing a shift toward autonomy. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of controversy over how fast autonomy will come on. I suspect autonomy is going to come a lot faster than people think, because I do suspect that autonomy is going to interact with artificial intelligence. Computers are already starting to program themselves. The speed at which they will be able to digest data and adjust, digest and adjust, will dwarf what we've ever seen in the past and that should speed autonomy. So right now, when you look at consultants, their, their sort of headline point for where level four autonomy becomes pervasive is typically you know, late 2030s. I would not be surprised to see very pervasive level four autonomy in, you know, in the very late 2020s. Um, we just had a, a large expansion of the zone in California where autonomous cars are allowed to drive and, and do passenger pickup. And in fact, Waymo just published data showing that um, the accident rates and mortality rates are very, very, very sharply lower um, for autonomous cars than they are for driver cars. And so where does this take us? If we're seeing large-scale autonomy in the 2030s, and we're seeing large-scale autonomies with electric cars, those cars can go, those cars can operate 16 hours a day. Those cars can go three times as long as, as internal combustion engine cars. They, they will know where to go to charge themselves. They will be able to operate through shared fleets at expense levels that will cause many, many drivers to wonder about the hunk of metal in their driveway and what it costs them. I suspect that the personal transport system as we move through the 2030s will have a very extensive amount of autonomous ferrying around in shared vehicles. And, and certainly we'll see a die out of internal combustion engine cars. What does this mean for the insurance industry? Well, 42% of all insurance premiums in North America are car insurance premiums. When you have autonomous cars that don't have accidents and electric cars with fewer parts, 
um, those cars are going to need much less attritional insurance, although you could have a lot of auto insurance become cyber because what you're susceptible to are hacks that are causing the autonomous auto system to work poorly. That is an interesting landscape for auto insurers, um, uh, you know, as well as all sorts of companies to look down. Um, as I said, I, I think that my auto experience and auto insurance experience today has more to do with 1955 than it does with 2035. It's a great perspective, Mike. Uh, in the couple minutes we have left, um, I wanted to raise um, something that quite frankly has been on my and other people's minds, and it goes to the heart of what you've already referenced, uh, something that doesn't necessarily hit the tangible assets of a company or a government agency or a national government for that matter. And that is the ability to spread disinformation and create information that looks like it is truthful and accurate when it is not. And very quickly uh, damage, I'll call it institutional trust and reputations. And uh, as you know, the whole debate, I guess, continues about what constitutes uh, the truth uh, increasingly, there are efforts to um, distort facts, create news that doesn't exist, and things that can be very significantly damaging to a company's brand, but I'll, I'll also say a country's brand. How are you thinking about that issue, and how are you thinking about the insurability of such a uh, of such an issue well i mean we're already there we're already there and i already referenced that indirectly through the issue of political violence you know we have increasing polarization in essentially every developed country in the world and part of it is that the internet seems to have maybe I shouldn't just pick the internet as a cause, but it seems to be a proximate cause, seems to have facilitated a world where, where virtually everyone can live in their own information environment, highly customized, which over time becomes a truth environment. So we are already in a place where there are different people living right next to each other who have completely different narratives about what facts are unfolding before them. Artificial intelligence is likely to make this far more grave because you know, this is being accomplished now just you know, by conveying news in certain ways. Once, once, you can, once you can provide evidence in the form of deep fake voice, deep fake video, deep fake pictures that back all sorts of alternative facts, it's going to be very hard for people to separate truth from fiction. Anybody that wants to disrupt a narrative will be able to flood a zone with, with a different version of the truth. They can now flood a zone with, you know, with, with different narratives, but they'll be able to flood a zone with, with completely made up evidence. And 
you know, the insurance system, you know, just to take this at a higher level, David, the insurance system grew up in, 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 this, in this sunny world of the Enlightenment, where we settled into, where we settled into an epistemological paradigm of, of fact and fiction, true or false, um, our entire legal system relies on notions of evidence. You know, most of us grew up in a world where everyone accepted that, that there was, that if you all set your compasses properly, you could all find true north in terms of what was true and what was false. That is going to slip away. It's going to be harder to make cases if you have someone who has been presented with deep fake evidence that has caused them to commit some mal act, who exactly is to blame for that? And how is a jury supposed to pick through evidence and, 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 and really address that? We have a, we've already seen a degradation of, of, of consensus notions of reality and that's likely to become quite grave. It's likely to re lead to increased political un uh, un stress. It's likely to undermine our legal system. And it's, it's hard to, those are, those are all areas that we have to think more about. How companies operate in that world is gonna to be tough. Reputational risk. How, how is an insurance company going to guarantee reputational risk against a deep fake? Certainly, you know, they can look at a company's defect rates and, and provide insurance and price it. But deep fakes, it's hard to analyze and price. Mike, it's been a um, truly great conversation, enlightening and uh, very thought provoking. And maybe I'll uh, extended with uh, a request to continue the conversation uh, post the conference and as we have even more feedback from the boards and C-suites of the NASDAQ member um, firms. Um, and I look forward to continuing the conversation and, and by the way, I'd be remiss if I didn't say thanks for the leadership that you show within the um, insurance industry because it's very much been um, in the public service, the way you educate people and obviously educate uh, insurers about the risks that are out there and uh, how to approach them. So thanks again, Mike. Thank you, David. This is the Rain Insights podcast, which is part of the Rain Insights series, comprised of both virtual and real-world events, offering unique practical perspectives from Rain's leading experts in risk management. To learn more, please visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. Thanks for listening.